when students use our technology, they're only introduced with like two buttons. Uh, it's very simple, record, stop, pause, plays back automatically, et cetera. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Awesoming's podcast, where we highlight people pursuing their definition of, you guessed it, awesome. So buckle up and get ready for some more success story adventures and failures from Kentucky's tech and entrepreneur community. Thanks so much for checking out this episode of Awesoming's podcast. Really lucky today to sit down with Scott out of Inquiry Technologies, and he, we're going to be focusing on his platform called The Job Winner. And Scott is our newest fellowship company that we've accepted for 2020. Really excited to hear you. And Scott, man, miss that we're not here together in person, sitting across the table in our in our studio, but I'm glad that we have the ability to chat over Zoom and use all this, this sweet tech to, to essentially be together virtually. Thank you, Garrett. I'm glad to be here. Um, this distance communication is getting all too comfortable, but very uncomfortable at the same time. So, no, <laughs> I totally, I totally understand that. Well, hey, Scott, let's just go ahead and jump right in. First thing, tell me about your day. How was how was your breakfast? Are you a breakfast kind of guy? Oh yeah, pretty much. I, I'm pretty much a regular omelet kind of guy, and uh, morning just started out the same as the others have been recently. So, no, I totally understand. I'm trying to make sure that I eat more breakfast now that I'm going back into the office. I don't have the luxury of just grabbing food whenever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've put on a few pounds in these past three months. So, uh, but I think that's just par for the course. <laughs> I think you and most people. Well, hey, with that, let's go ahead and, and dive on in. I want to talk about, again, the the great work that you're doing and you're out of London, Kentucky. I know that. And Scott would love if you can give us a quick insight into your background. I know a lot of it is educational focused and we'd love to hear Again, maybe start from when you first started teaching and you're getting your doctor of education. We'd love to hear some of the background and we'll kind of progress along the timeline that brought you to where you are today. Yeah, I started uh, a career in education, uh, taught biology for and physical science for 10 years at the high school level and spent another 10 years as a uh, instructional technology facilitator where I helped other teachers do a little bit more with technology, occasionally work with their students and so forth. And um, I was frustrated when I when I taught in that a lot of my students, I could tell they understood the concepts. If we were doing a lab, we were uh, be a computer lab or hands-on lab, I could tell that the students understood the concepts, but when it went to grading a paper or a lab report or a test on Friday, uh, often the results that came back were far from what I knew they actually understood. And it, it took quite a few years before I understood that it wasn't that they didn't get the concepts. It's just that they couldn't express those concepts through writing or a multiple choice test that was more designed to confuse them than uh, bring clarity. When I was working as a facilitator, uh, about the same time that the flip classroom movement was happening and the Khan Academy was gaining some, some traction, we were actually creating screencasts for teachers to keep them from having to go to workshops and uh, after school and so forth. And I simply asked the question uh, as a dissertation topic, what happens if you put that same type of technology in the hands of students and let them teach up to the teachers themselves? Um, so ran a study, got some really, really positive results. Um, the kids that were involved in this uh, really performed 
far better than when they were asked to write about similar or the same situations. So that prompted us to uh, start writing some grant proposals. I was still working at the time as a teacher. A um, couple of them got rejected for good reasons. And then we, uh, we got our first hit with National Science Foundation. So at that point, I took six months of sick leave to get to year 20 and took early retirement and started, well, we had the business started before, but um, started in this venture, which has kept me going for, for some time now. No, awesome. Yeah, thanks for that background. That's that's good to hear. And Scott, again, I would love to dive a little more into into some of the steps that got you to where you are today. A few quick things I noticed. You talk about the flip classroom, and then also you said the word facilitator. Would you mind breaking down the difference from your opinion and your experience, what a facilitator is in the classroom and an educational setting is versus an actual educator or teacher? Well, facilitator is there to support learning. Um, they they do that in a number of ways. They meet the kids where they're at and they provide them with assistance and, and kind of bridge uh, their learning capabilities. That's not often the model, especially in high school, um, where uh, high school teachers still tend to be sage from the stage kind of thing where lecture is king. Um, and it's changing to a certain extent, but it's still far too predominant in the classrooms, in my opinion. Um, as a facilitator with technology, what I was doing was helping teachers just get a, a more comfort level with the technology that they were using with the students. Um, and the best way that I found to do that was to actually model it. Uh, if it was a technology that we were trying to instill, rather than try and train the teachers, I would actually go in and work directly with the students, say, you just watch, let's see how this works. We'll do a, a, a day or two project and then you'll have a much better idea. And the training became much easier at that point. So being able to go in and, and set an exemplar as to how it should be done worked uh, far better than just trying to have them go to workshops and learn the road steps and so forth. Yeah, really, really cool. And then the last thing, what are what is the, the flip classroom? Is that the model where a teacher, they're mobile? They don't necessarily have one set up shop? The flipped classroom model started uh, with the idea of allowing the students to digest a lot of the material, a lot of the content at home. So teachers started creating screencasts of their lectures or the, the content delivery, and the students would spend more time in the classroom working on activities with assistance from the teacher. Then they would pick up the content as homework uh, from home by listening or, or watching uh, the screencast. It seems like it's going to give a little foreshadow into, into some of what we'll jump into in a little bit later in this episode. So Scott, again, you, you've achieved quite a bit in your, your educational career, and you've also been over the place from, from what I've been able to find. You've been both in Kentucky, traveling around as you were an adjunct professor at Appalachian State, and then you were also at UC Berkeley. Would you mind giving, again, some, some background from as you were earning your, your Doctor of Education all the way to how you ended up on the West Coast, and and then again how you came back here. Would love to hear some of some of the highlights of the different skills that you've learned, and I'd say probably some of the main things that have influenced the way you work today, both here in Kentucky and then also in California. The bulk of my teaching experience was in North Carolina, uh, Catawba County, which uh, Hickory is the the main city. There's actually three systems in that um, in that county, and the county I worked for had. At the time, 27 different schools. Um, and where I got involved with the folks at Berkeley was um, it, it was a program uh, as a large National Science Foundation grant 
uh, to the tune of $10 million over five years. And that grant explored the development of different models and simulations uh, and how they affected learning. Um, it was done in conjunction with a, another organization called Concord Consortium out of uh, Massachusetts. And they worked together, and I was introduced to them through a well, was basically a workshop. And uh, they took interest in what I was interested in, and I was definitely interested in, in the work that they were doing. Uh, so I came on to that project as the lead teacher for North Carolina. Uh, we had a contingency of about two dozen teachers at one point that were participating in the project. Um, so I didn't really spend permanent time in California at Berkeley, but I would attend uh, most of the workshops and uh, led this contingency of teachers uh, in this this large project. There was a group in Massachusetts, uh, a couple of groups in, in California as well. Um, but that really helped shape my capacity for conducting research uh, and a lot of the learning techniques that they were measuring uh, I've carried over into uh, most of my research. Again, you you got a couple of degrees focused on education. I'd say, how have they helped you set a solid foundation and propelled you to where you are today? Well, my degree originally, my undergraduate degree was in biology. Um, and it obviously set a foundation for the, the scientific background. But I went into teaching uh, just with a biology degree. I actually hadn't been in a classroom in, in probably 15 years when I started teaching. Uh, so I had to go back and pick up the educational pieces to actually uh, gain full certification. Um, and that was an interesting uh, task because I was considerably older than most of the students and brought a little bit different uh I won't say level of wisdom, but uh, a different story to the table on a lot of occasions. And then I went into a master's degree uh, program at Appalachian State University and uh, had, uh, it was in uh, instructional technology. So I learned a lot of hands-on tools, how to properly deploy technology, uh, worked with some specific apps and so forth. It was a very good programs, rather unique in that uh, at its time, it was actually conducted uh, virtually. So we had a, uh, a virtual world where we all met with avatars and uh, most of our courses uh, took place in, in virtual space. So that was interesting. And then with the doctorate work, uh, I just settled on the, uh, the dissertation topic. I had a lot of topics that I explored, but um, finally settled on this one where we were actually looking at the, the use of screencasting in the classroom. Man, that was that was some good background. Thanks for sharing that. Scott, I have another question again before we move on to to talk about your your startup. Want to know this is more of a, a personal question. I'm just curious and you might have addressed it up front, but what is what is the most challenging area that you you think you saw as an instructor that you maybe you face consistently or if there is something that has a consistent thread all the way through years in the educational system? What what would you say that one or maybe those few things are? I think the one mainstay that, that still drives me the most is the way that we tend to assess students. Um, even at very early ages, we often, we're not really measuring their conceptual understanding. What we're measuring most often is their capacity to read and or write. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that those aren't vital tasks that need to be mastered and, and improved upon all the time. But 
if you look at something as complex as technical writing, it's difficult for most of us. I mean, that's a large part of what I do with the grant process and, and so forth is writing. And it's, it's not easy, even at my age and with my background and experience. So to expect that an elementary student uh, is, should be able to express themselves through this writing process when it comes to complex concepts is, is, a, is a very far grasp. And I think we need outlets that students are somehow able to show their expression, their level of understanding that does not necessarily have to involve their capacity to read at grade level or their capacity to write at grade level. And with younger students, especially, we're, we're, we're really doing a disservice to many kids that may be a year behind uh, or, you know, may have some type of um, learning disability that, that prevents them from getting a good grade on a test. So we're, we're, we're crushing a lot of minds, kids saying, oh, I'm just not good at science, or I don't understand math, when in fact, they may very well have a good understanding, it's just that they're not able to express it. So that's somewhat of my driving force for, for what we've been doing. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And again, I thought of this question earlier, and then I forgot about it, and then rethought about it with what you just said. What are your thoughts on standardized tests like the ACT? Again, you, you mentioned assessing students. That that has a lot of hype to it. I know we have a couple of interns that have come through our doors that are still in high school, and that test still to this day has so much emphasis on, I have to perform, I have to get the score or whatever. What are your thoughts on I that? Think, I think the pandemic is actually one thing that positive that may come from it is it does seem to have knocked down the high stakes testing notch quite a bit. Um, I think that needs to go. Um, I applaud universities that are now saying that they're no longer taking that in as a functional piece for determining college entrance. Um, it's a cheap way of trying to measure <laughs> aptitude. Um, you can't explore levels of understanding to the extent through a multiple choice test of any means. Um, yes, testing has its place. I'm not saying that that it needs to be totally done away with, but it shouldn't be the leading factor for determining uh, college entrance or uh, even, even class entry into uh, certain levels of, of uh, like an honors class versus the average class and so forth. So, I think the the sooner and the quicker we can get away from rote testing, I think education will uh, benefit from it overall. Thanks for the insight. That's that's good to hear. Scott, I want to transition now to talk about your startup. And can you share with me real quickly um, your elevator pitch of the problem that you guys are solving? What we're trying to achieve is to increase understanding of STEM education both in rural households, in the classroom, and uh, improve at the same time the way teachers are capable of reaching out to their students and those students' parents or guardians. So we're, we see ourselves as a tool that enables education, uh, facilitates education in a way that complements the curriculum and the content that's taking place in the classroom. 
Scott, again, we'll keep on rolling. So what is your company, Inquiry Technologies? Uh, something I found out about you, you said you are a principal investigator for small businesses. We'd love to hear about some of these terms that you've you've uh, yeah, given yourself as title of, and then also, again, with what you just shared, how that, how that all connects. Yeah, our, our research has been funded through a program called the Small Business Innovation Research Program, or SBIR. Um, and it's a, a type of grant. It, all of the major grant agencies from National Science Foundation to NIH to USDA, uh, Department of Energy, Department of Defense, have to allocate roughly 3% of their research funds to this SBIR program. Uh, the idea is whoever is acting as the lead researcher, or as they refer to it as the principal investigator, um, has to have a background in the technology that they're developing and has to work at least 50% of their time for the small business. So what that does is it eliminates a lot of professors that may moonlight on the side and only take a job for its title. Um, and where it differs from typical research is, yeah, there is a research component where you have to investigate and conduct controlled science studies and develop technology and so forth. But the other half is you are expected to develop a small business, uh, employ people, and actually commercialize the technology that you're working on. So it's twofold. One is they want you to investigate technologies that are new and novel, can make a difference, but they also want to see that technology gain traction and get out in the marketplace where it can uh, be picked up and, and used, sometimes quicker than what happens through uh, typical research uh, that is often conducted through universities. So with those grants, we were able to develop uh, prototypes of the technology that we worked with, uh, both for student use and teacher use, uh, and found a very unique method of uh, distributing those screencasts, or what we called unicast in the home. Uh, and with a, with a phase two grant that we have with USDA right now, we were able to take the technology to the point where it's commercially viable at this point, highly scalable, and it's, it's right on the cusp of being released uh, to school districts. But about a year ago, um, we made somewhat of a pivot. Uh, as, I, as you can tell, the bulk of my background research is in education. Um, but education is a very tough market, especially for a startup. Uh, it's, it's, uh, the sales cycle is annual. Um, schools, you may have heard, don't have a whole lot of money uh, to invest and so forth. So we're still doing a lot of our research and a lot of our product development in education. But we also gained traction from a company that uh, had been watching us develop over the, uh, over the years. And they've showed a lot of interest in uh, using the technology for their work. And they're, they're involved with uh, workforce development. Uh, the organization is part of EKSEP. Uh, it's called Teleworks USA. And so we've adapted our technology to fit their needs. And we're looking at using it for soft skills development for people to uh, improve themselves in the, uh, with job interviews to gain a little better chance of, of gaining employment in primarily work from home type of positions or jobs. What a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. No, that's, that's really cool to hear. 
And you, you said, you say a lot of good stuff at just from natural flow of conversation and it fires off in my head, handfuls of different questions. And so one of them was, uh, again, I wanted to bring up, bring about Unicast. That's something I found. And I thought that was pretty interesting. What is the foundation of that? How did your, how did your team form Unicast and how have you guys been able to leverage that in the software for your company on a, like a widespread level, I'd say? Anybody that is familiar with screencasting knows that there's a number of tools out there that are uh, open source or free online or freemium uh, type of versions. So the the idea of screencasting is not all that novel or unique. But in education, you have to have some type of um, background so that the teachers are one capable of deploying it with individual licenses, which most of these tools that are available now are set up for individual use, nothing that can be networked or, or used in a classroom or across an entire district. And teachers have to have some level of oversight where they can watch what their students are doing, they can control access if need be, change passwords and so forth. So a lot of our work, once we develop the tool, was in providing that back end that allows for very rapid deployment of thousands of licenses at a time. And it gives the teachers the capacity to be able to maintain some control, some oversight in what their students are doing. Um, that's the, the, the bulk of what we did in terms of the technology. In terms of features, we've kind of taken a reverse step to what a lot of companies in the industry have done. Uh, most of them will add bells and whistles to kind of make them obsolete or different from the rest of the pack. We've taken the other direction. Uh, when students use our technology, they're only introduced with like two buttons. Uh, it's very simple, record, stop, pause, plays back automatically, et cetera, because that's one of the things that I found when I was working with teachers and trying to implement technology. It doesn't really matter how fantastic the software, or the, the hardware device may be, if teachers and to a lesser degree, students can't pick it up in like five minutes, forget it. It's not gonna, it's not gonna keep traction after the workshop. They won't come back to it a year later. So whatever technology we introduced into the schools, we use a very simplistic design that literally we've we've tested this with first graders up through adults and people are able to pick up the technique within minutes. Right on. Yeah, that was really cool to hear. I, I didn't know that. I wasn't sure if you guys built something. Again, you mentioned open source code. So that's cool to hear that you guys explored different options. Yeah. Well, the way the, the grants work is initially with the, they're typically phase one and phase two. Phase one grants say, okay, this is proof of concept. Show us that your idea has some merit to it and that it works and that it can be functional. So for that, we used open source software, um, a lot of labor intensive uh, deployment in terms of getting it loaded on machines and so forth. But once we got to phase two, phase two says, okay, you've proven to us that this has some legitimacy. Now build the tool out to where you can uh, patent it and uh, get some IP protection and put it out on the market. Scott, a couple more questions and we'll, we'll wrap up our time together. Uh, I'm going to throw a curveball in and um, ask this one real quickly. So you've talked a lot about your educational background. Really appreciative of you for sharing that. Thank you. What is the importance of entrepreneurship? Let me say that again. What is the importance of entrepreneurship 
that you have seen with your edu- educational background? Because it seems that you are, you're pretty progressive in your ideas of you think that there is more emphasis on not having all these systems to assess students. It, at times it might need to be more of a case by case and entrepreneurship seems to have that, that view on how it takes on life. It's not always going to play by the rules and be cookie cutter. It's more of a, Hey, we're going to go things and we're, we're going to go until something breaks and we're going to try the system and we're going to think and be innovative versus follow something, follow a plan to a T. And that's some of what I've heard from you. I would love to hear your, your thoughts on maybe how entrepreneurship should be more integrated into the educational world. Wow. That's a big question. Um, I think there's a, a definite capability to introduce entrepreneurship in the classroom, uh, working with some groups in Corbin, uh, which is where a lot of our research has taken place, uh, Corbin Independent Schools. Uh, one teacher works with students and they have a, a pay model. Uh, they, the students don't actually receive money, but they assume certain roles and certain jobs and they have to work those jobs in the classroom. It tends to teach them a little bit in terms of uh, how businesses can run. But I guess the one thing that kind of sticks out is that entrepreneurs are uniquely different and companies are uniquely different and that there is no cookie cutter approach. So it's a challenge to be able to um, train that or teach that. I'm a big fan, a big supporter of CTE programs, of job apprenticeship programs, starting at high school levels and so forth, because I think that is, um, it gives students the level of experience early on uh, to be able to make choices about what they want to do beyond uh, beyond high school experience. You literally set me up for the next question. What is the job winner? I know that is that is the aspect of your company that we brought on for the fellowship. Would you give us again a sure. quick oversight into that and then maybe go into depth on some of the success you guys have seen with that platform? Sure. The, the job winner differs in terms of the software. Uh, we, we still, with education, we didn't really, while, while we support screencasting, we didn't include a webcam feature. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, students are expected to use this at home and at school. An eighth grade student with a webcam, what could go wrong? Um, you know, so <laughs> one reason we didn't include it was a liability issue. Uh, but second, when we did test this early on, when the kids were had the presence of a webcam, the activity became less and less about the content and more of a production. So they would start primping their hair. They were worried about how they looked as opposed to what they were asked to do or to provide examples of, et cetera. So we found the webcam as as actually distracting to the learning process. So we've never enabled a webcam. Uh, That's not the case with the job winner. Job winner has uh, webcam recording and picture-in-picture recording that's available so that with People that are preparing for interviews, we've developed a uh, curricular course that provides generic information, um, largely video-based, about uh, you know certain things that are going to be common in pretty much all types of interviews. And then we look at the client that we're working with and deliver questions that are specific to the market that they are trying to employ people in. So the, the job seeker goes through a very simplified course. They learn about interview skills, and then they use our software to practice their, 
those their answers to these specific prompts or questions that we pose to them. And just like in education, what we're finding is that we actually force the viewer or the person that's doing the recording has to watch it before they can share it with a teacher in education or a job trainer in the uh, workforce development world. And by doing that, they can discard it at any time. So if they made a mistake or they just they get rid of it and do another recording. But before they can share it, they have to watch it. And that's intentional because what we found is when they watch themselves perform, they often go back and repeat, pick up mistakes that they weren't aware of and repeat the process, improving most of the time, every time that they do it. So when they actually do share the product, it's, they've already done a lot of practice with it. So they've already made self-improvement, et cetera. And what we've done for the job trainer or the teacher is when they can provide feedback, their feedback is actually layered in as an audio track that goes on top of the original recording. So the job seeker's voice is dubbed down by about 70% and the trainer's voice comes over. So the, the student or the job seeker is actually hearing a familiar voice that's encouraging them, giving them criticism where it's needed, uh, but putting them on a path instead of red ink in the margins and so forth. So we think that familiarity with the job trainer uh, will improve dramatically the, the outcomes um, for both students. Well, we've shown that it helps tremendously with students, and we think we'll have similar results with people that are better prepared and uh, ready for the job interviews when it comes around. Yeah, very, very cool. Thank you for sharing that. want to follow up with, uh, with actually something you just said. Do you guys have any specific numbers of, or maybe a percentage of people who've used the job winner platform that have been able to get a job because of their, their use with your, with your service? We are right in the initial works of uh, working with Teleworks USA. That's our beachhead client, um, our um, first real client. So they were kind of set back a little bit with the pandemic themselves. They had uh, nine hubs that throughout Eastern Kentucky that they staffed, and now they're still at a work from home model. So we're just kind of retooling things there and introducing it to them on a, on a fairly large scale basis. That rollout hasn't occurred yet. We're anticipating that in the next uh, month or two. Um, so we don't have numbers yet other than uh, small numbers and, and so forth. But it, it's, I think it will be um, well, not easy to attain these numbers, but they've been around for a long time. And we should be able to very simply measure the uh, performance rate in terms of the, the percentage of those that are seeking or that actually gain employment uh, with the job winner versus uh, their previous model uh, without using it. Scott, what uh, what's something you're excited about accomplishing with with the job winner within the ne- the next year that you are part of the fellowship? Everybody's aware of this, but Eastern Kentucky struggles a lot with employment. Has uh, chronic unemployment issues um, for a number of reasons that that I don't need to dwell on. Um, but now the entire state with the pandemic, the unemployment rates are just through the roof. Um, and many of these jobs, as unfortunate as it is to say, probably are not going to return. So we're faced with an employment issue that is like none other. And the one thing that I'm excited about with the work that Teleworks is doing is 
they're not just training people for work at home positions, but they're working directly with companies such as Hilton, Amazon, U-Haul. These companies represent new money coming into the communities. So by having people work in the convenience of their home or in an office that is set up with, with uh, proper bandwidth, you're one able to employ people with gainful employment that comes with benefits, but two, you're bringing in money from out, out of the state. And that's critically needed um, to provide some relief to you know, not just people that are unemployed, but to communities, to the tax base, um, to the whole economy of the Commonwealth. Very exciting. Scott, man, this has been a treat. And we're going to wrap up with the list. this last question that is personally my favorite question. Oh, oh, this is where you get, to, you get to preach <laughs> off from, uh, from your platform. What's some advice that you would love to pass on to any younger or new entrepreneur that is is wanting to start you know, their startup, to start on their venture and if possible, can this piece of advice be something you wish you would have known, you know, seven, 10 years ago when you started Inquiry Technologies? Over the years, if you count the master's work starting from kindergarten all the way through the doctorate, I've logged 34 years of education in some form or the other. Different levels of learning uh, come at all those different stages, but you have to be very passionate about what you're doing, especially when you form a business, because if the passion's not there, if you're not in hundred percent, forget it. There's too many obstacles that you're not going to be able to overcome if your heart's not behind what you're trying to do. That's awesome to hear, man. Scott, really, really grateful for your time. Grateful for the wisdom that you shared and speak on behalf of our team. We are excited for where your company is going in the next year. And honestly, to be a part of it, we're, we're excited to see the success. We know you're hard at work and we're thankful for the work that you were doing. Well, I, I just want to extend thanks to uh, Keith and, and the fellowship that Awesome Inc. is providing. Um, I didn't know that much about it until uh, I was introduced through uh, an MBA course at UK that I was part of. Um, but I can't tell you how exciting it is for us to be part of the fellowship at I mean, I couldn't think of a better time. All the benefits, all the resources, uh, just the community that it's offering uh, is, is tremendous. So just wanted to thank everybody for giving us that opportunity. Scott, looking forward to meeting you in person soon. Okay. Thank you, Garrett. I appreciate it. Well, that's it, guys. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Awesomings Podcast. And another quick thank you to Lee Rosevear and a few members from our community who provide the music that you hear in this show. Lastly, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, all that jazz, or even better, come on down to our space. Come be a part of our community and get plugged in and let's start something awesome together. You guys rock. We'll see you next time.